Part Eight of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Eight. The tunnel was long and black, and the air was stale and thick with the stench of rodents. Stanton stood still, trying to probe the luminescent gloom that the goggles he wore brought to his eyes. The tunnel stretched out before him, and on and on. Around him was the smell of viciousness and death. Ahead, it goes on to infinity, Stanton thought, ending at last at zero. Barmel, said a voice near his ear. Barhop here, do you read? It was the barest whisper picked up by the antenna in his shoes from the steel rail that ran along the tunnel. Read you, Barhop. Move out, then. You've got a long stroll to go. Stanton started walking, keeping his feet near the rail in case Barhop wanted to call again. As he walked, he could feel the slight motion of the skin-tight woven elastic suit that he wore rubbing against his skin. And he could hear the scratching patter of the rats. Mostly they stayed away from him, but he could see them hiding in corners and scurrying along the sides of the tunnel. Around him six rat-like remote-control robots moved with him, shifting their pattern constantly as they patrolled his moving figure. Far ahead, he knew, other rat-robots were stationed, watching and waiting, ready to deactivate the knife's detection devices at just the right moment. Behind him, another horde moved forward to turn the devices on again. It had taken a long time to learn how to shut off those detectors without giving the alarm to the knife's instruments. There were nearly a hundred men in on the operation, operating the robot rats or watching the hidden cameras that spied upon the knife. Nearly a hundred, and all of them were safe. They were outside the tunnel. They were with Stanton, only in proxy. They could not die here in this stinking hole, but Stanton could. There was no help for it. Stanton had to go in person. A full-sized robot proxy would be stronger, although not faster, unless Stanton controlled it, than the Nipe. But the Nipe would be able to tell that it was a robot, and he would simply destroy it with one of his weapons. A remote-controlled robot would never get close enough to the Nipe to do any good. We do not know, Dr. Yoritomo had said, whether he would recognize it as a robot or not, but his instruments would show the metal easily enough, and his eyes might be able to see that it was not covered with human skin. The rats are covered with real rat hides. They are small, and he is used to seeing them around. But a human-sized robot? Ah, oh, no, never. So Stanton had to go in in person, walking southward along the miles of blackness that led to the nest of the Nipe. Overhead was Government City. He had walked those streets only the night before, and he knew that only a short distance above him was an entirely different world. Somewhere up there his brother was waiting, after having run the gamut of televised interviews, dinner at one of the best restaurants, and a party afterwards, a celebrity. The greatest detective in the solar system, they called him. Fine stuff, that. 
Stanton wondered what the asteroids were like. Maybe that would be the place to go after this job was done. Maybe they'd have a place in the asteroids for a hopped-up superman. Or maybe there'd be a place here, beneath the streets of Government City, for a dead superman. Not if I can help it, Stanton thought with a grim smile. The walking seemed to take forever, but somehow Stanton didn't mind it. He had a lot to think over. Seeing his brother had been unnerving yesterday, but today he felt as though everything had been all right all along. His memory still was a long way from being complete, and it probably always would be. He could still scarcely recall any real memories of a boy named Martin Stanton, but, and he smiled at the thought, he knew more about him than his brother did at that. It didn't matter. That Martin Stanton was gone. In effect, he had been demolished, what little there had been of him, and a new structure had been built on the old foundation. And yet, in another way, the new structure was very like what would be developed naturally if the accident so early in life had not occurred. Stanton skirted a pile of rubble on his right. There had been a station here, once. The street above had caved in and filled in with brick, concrete, cobblestones, and steel scrap, and then it had been sealed over when the government city was built. A part of one wall was still unbroken, though. A sign built of tile said 86th Street. He knew, although it wasn't visible in the dim glow. He kept walking, ignoring the rats that scampered over the rubble. Barhop to Barbell, said the soft voice near his ear. No sign of activity from the nipe. So far you haven't triggered any of his alarms. Barbell to Barhop, Stanton whispered. What's he doing? Still sitting motionless, thinking, I guess, or sleeping, it's hard to tell. Let me know if he starts moving around. Will do. Poor, unsuspecting beastie, Stanton thought. Ten years of hard work, ten years of feeling secure, and within a very short time he's going to get the shock of his life. Or maybe not. There was no way of knowing what kind of shocks the knife had taken in his life, Stanton thought, not even of knowing whether the knife was capable of feeling anything like security. It was odd, he thought, that he should feel a kinship toward both the knife and his brother in such similar ways. He had never met the knife, and his brother was a dim picture in his old memories, but they were both very well known to him certainly better known to him than he was to them. And yet, seeing his brother's face on the TV screen, hearing him talk, watching the way he moved about, watching the expressions on his face, had been a tremendously moving thing. Not until that moment had he really known himself. Meeting him face to face would be easier now, but it would still be a scene highly charged with emotional tension. He kicked something that rattled and rolled away from him. He stopped, freezing in his tracks, trying to pierce the dully glowing gloom. It was a human skull. He relaxed and began walking again. There were plenty of bones down here. 
Mannheim had said that the tunnels had been used as air raid shelters when the sun bomb had hit the island during the Holocaust. Thousands had crowded underground after the warning had come, and they had died when the bright, hot, deadly gas had roared down through the ventilators and open stairwells. There were even caches of canned goods down here, some of them still sealed after all this time. But the rats, wiser than they knew, had chewed at them, exposing the steel beneath the tin plate. After a while, oxidation would weaken a can to the point where some lucky rat would bite through it and find himself a meal. Then he could move the empty can aside and gnaw the next one in the pile, and the cycle would begin again. It kept the rats fed almost as well as an automatic machine might have. The tunnel was an endless, monochromatic world that was both artificial and natural. Here there was a neatly squared-off mosaic of ceramic tile. Over there, on a little hillock of earth, squatted a colony of fat mushrooms. In one place he had to skirt a pool of water, in another climb over a heap of rust and debris that had once been a subway car. One man, alone, walking through the dark, towards a superhuman monster that had terrorized Earth for a decade. A drug that would knock out the knife would have been useful, but that would have required a greater knowledge of the knife's biochemistry than anyone had. The same applied to anesthetic gases or electric shock or supersonics. The only answer was a man called Stanton. And the voice near his ear said, A hundred yards to go, Barbell. I know, he whispered. He hasn't moved? No. Wouldn't it be funny if he were dead, Stanton thought, if his heart had stopped or something? Wouldn't that be a big joke on everybody, especially me? Ahead, the tunnel made a curving turn, and there was a large area that had once been a major junction of two tunnels, one below the other. The knipe had taken over a part of that area to build his home away from home. Stanton approached the turn and took off the infrared goggles. Enough light spilled over from the knipe's lair to illuminate the tunnel. He put the goggles on the trackway. He wouldn't need them again. He went on around the curve, slowly and quietly. He didn't want to fight down here in the tracks, and he didn't want to be caught just yet. Cautiously, he lifted himself up to the platform where long-gone passengers had once waited for long-gone trains. Now that he was out of the trench that the tracks lay in, he could move more easily. He moved away from the tracks. Barbell, he's heard you. Watch it. But Stanton had already heard the movement of the knipe. He jerked off the communicator and threw it away. He didn't want any encumbrances now. And then, as fast as any express train that had ever moved in these underground ways, the knipe came around a corner thirty feet away, his four violet eyes gleaming, his limbs rippling beneath his centipede-like body. From fifteen feet away, he launched himself through the air, his outstretched hands ready to kill. But Stanton's marvelous neuromuscular system was already in action. 
At this stage of the game, it would be suicide to let the knife get close. He couldn't fend off eight grasping hands with his own two. He leaped to one side, and the knife got his first surprise in ten years when Stanton's fist slammed against the side of his snouted head, knocking him in the opposite direction from that in which Stanton had moved. The knife landed, turned, and charged back toward the man. This time he reared up, using his two rear pairs of limbs for locomotion, while the two forward pair were held out, ready to kill. He got surprise number two when Stanton's fist landed on his snout, rocking his head back. His own hands meant nothing but air, and by the time he had recovered from the blow, Stanton was well back out of the way. He was so small, Stanton thought wonderingly. Even when he reared up, the knife's head was only three feet above the concrete floor. The knife came in again, more cautiously this time. Stanton punched again with a straight right. The knife moved his head aside, and Stanton's knuckles merely grazed the side of his head below the lower right eye. One of the knife's hands came in in a chopping right hook that took Stanton just below the ribs. Stanton leaped back with a gasp of pain. The knife didn't use fists. He used his open hand, fingers together like a judo fighter. The knife came forward once more, and as Stanton danced back, the knife made a grab for his ankle, almost catching it. There were too many hands to watch. Stanton had two advantages, weight and reach. His arms were almost half again as long as the knife's. Against that, the knife had all those hands, and with his low center of gravity and four-footed stance, it would be hard to knock him down. If Stanton lost his footing, the fight would be over fast. Stanton lunged suddenly forward and planted a left in the knife's right upper eye, then followed it with a right uppercut to the knife's jaw as his head snapped back. The knife's four hands cut inward from the sides like sword blades, but they found no target. Backing away, Stanton suddenly realized that he had another advantage. The knife couldn't throw a straight jab. His shoulder, if that's what they should be called, were narrow, and the upper arm bones weren't articulated properly for such a blow. He could throw a mean hook, but he had to get in close to deliver it. On the other side of the coin was the fact that the knife knew plenty about human anatomy, from the bones out. Stanton's knowledge of knife anatomy was almost totally superficial. He wished he knew if and where the knife had a solar plexus. He would like to punch something soft for a change. Instead, he tried for another eye. He danced in, jabbed, and danced out again. The knife had ducked again, taking it on the side of his head. Then the knife came in low, at an angle, trying for the groin. For his troubles, he got a knee in the jaw that staggered him badly. One grasping hand clutched at Stanton's right thigh and grasped hard. Stanton swung his fist down like a pendulum and knocked the arm aside. But there was a slight limp in his movement as he backpedaled away from the knife. That full-handed pinch had hurt. Stanton was angry now, with the hot, controlled anger of a fighting man. 
He stepped in and slammed two fast, hard jabs into the point of the knife's snout, jarring the monster backwards. This time it was the knife who scuttled backwards. Stanton moved in to press his advantage and landed a butte on the knife's lower left eye. Then he tried a body blow. It wasn't too successful. The alien had an endoskeleton, but he also had a hide that was like somewhat leathery chitin. He pulled back out of the way of the knife's judo cuts. His fists were beginning to hurt, and his leg was paining him badly where the knife had clamped onto it, and his ribs. And then he realized that, so far, the knife had only landed one blow. One punch and one pinch, he thought with a touch of awe. The only other damage he'd inflicted has been to my knuckles. The knife charged in again. Then he leaped suddenly and clawed for Stanton's face with his first pair of hands. The second and third pairs chopped in toward the man's body. The last pair propelled him off the floor. Stanton stepped back and let him have a right just below the jaw where his throat would have been if he'd been human. The knife arced backwards in a half-somersault and landed flat on his back. Stanton backed up a little more, waiting while the knife wriggled feebly for a moment. The Marquis of Queensbury should have lived to see this, he thought. The knife rolled over and crouched on all eight limbs. His violet eyes watched Stanton, but the man could read no expression on that inhuman face. You do not kill. For a moment Stanton found it hard to believe that the hissing, guttural voice had come from the crouching monster. You do not even try to kill. I have no wish to kill you, Stanton said evenly. I can see that. Do you? Are you? He stopped as if baffled. There are not the proper words. Do you follow the customs? Stanton felt a surge of triumph. This was what George Yoritomo had guessed might happen. If I must kill you, he said carefully, I myself will do the honors. You will not go uneaten. The knife sagged a little, relaxing all over. I had hoped it was so. It was the only thinkable thing. I saw you on the television, and it was only thinkable that you came for me. Stanton blinked, stunned. What was the knife thinking? But of course he knew, and he saw that even his brother's return had been a part of the plan. I knew you were out in the asteroids, the knife went on. But I had decided you had come to kill. Since you did not, what are your thoughts, Stanley Martin? That we should help each other, Stanton said. It was as simple as that. Stanton sat in his hotel room, smoking a cigarette, staring at the wall and thinking. He was alone again. All the fuss, feathers, and foo were over. 
Farnsworth was in another room of the suite, making his plans for a complete physical examination of the knife. Yoritomo was having the time of his life, holding a conversation with the knife, drawing the alien out, and getting him to talk about his own race and their history. And Mannheim was plotting the next phase of the capture, the cover-up. Stanton smiled a little. Colonel Mannheim was a great one for planning, all right. Every little detail was taken care of. It sometimes made his plans more complex than necessary, Stanton suspected. Mannheim tended to try to account for every eventuality, and after he had done that, he would set aside reserves here and there just in case they might be useful if something unforeseen happened. Stanton got up walked over to the window and looked down at the streets of Government City, eight floors below. All things considered, the government had done the right thing. And in picking Mannheim, they had picked the right man. What would the average citizen think if he knew the true story of the Nipe? If he discovered that, at this very moment, the Nipe was being treated almost as an honored guest of the government— if he suspected that the knipe could have been killed easily at any time during the past six years. Would it be possible to explain that, in the long run, the knowledge possessed by the knipe was tremendously more valuable to the race of man than the lives of a few individuals? Could those people down there and the others like them all over the world be made to understand that, by his own lights, the knipe had been acting in the most civilized and gentlemanly way he knew. Would they see that, because of the priceless information stored in that alien brain, the knipe's life had to be preserved at all cost? Dr. Uritomo assumed that Mannheim would spread a story about the knipe's death, perhaps even display a carefully made corpse, but Stanton had the feeling that the colonel had something else up his sleeve. The phone rang. Stanton walked over, thumbed the answer stud, and watched Dr. Farnsworth's face take shape on the screen. Bart, I just saw the tapes of your fight with the knipe. Incredible. I'm going to have to run them over again, slow down, so that I can see what went on. And I'd like to have you tell me as best you can what went on in your mind at each stage of the fight. You mean right now? I have an appointment. Farnsworth waved a hand. No, no, later. Take your time. But I am honestly amazed that you won so easily. I knew you were good, and I knew you'd win, but I honestly expected you to be injured. Stanton looked down at his bandaged hands and felt the ache of his broken rib and the blue bruise on his thigh. In spite of the way it looked, he had actually been hurt worse than the knife had. That boy was tough. The trouble was that he couldn't adapt himself to fighting in a new way, he told Farnsworth. He fought me as he would have fought another knipe, and that didn't work. I had to reach on him, and I could maneuver faster. It looked to me as though you were fighting him as you would fight another human being, Farnsworth said. Stanton grinned. I was in a modified way, but I won. The knipe didn't. Farnsworth grinned back. I see. Well, I'll let you know when I'm ready for your impressions. Probably tomorrow sometime. Fine. 
He walked back over to the window, but this time he looked at the horizon, not at the street. Farnsworth had called him Bart. It's funny, Stanton thought, how habit can get the best of a man. Farnsworth had known the truth all along, and now he knew that his patient, former patient, was aware of the truth, and still he had called him Bart. And I still think of myself as Bart, he thought. I probably always will. And why not? Martin Stanton no longer existed. In fact, he had never had much of a real existence. He was only a bad dream. Only Bart was real. Take two people genetically identical. Damage one of them so badly that he is helpless and useless, and always only a step away from death. It is inevitable that the weaker will identify himself with the stronger. The vague telepathic bond that always links identical twins, they think alike, they say, becomes unbalanced under such conditions. Normally there is a give and take, and each preserves the sense of his own identity, since the two different sets of sense receptors give different viewpoints. But if one of the twins is damaged badly enough, something must happen to the telepathic link. Usually it is broken. But the link between Mart and Bart Stanton had not been broken. It had become a one-way channel. Martin, in order to escape the prison of his own body, had become a receptor for Bart's thoughts. He felt as Bart felt, the thrill of running after a baseball, the pride of doing something clever with his hands. In effect, Martin ceased to think. The thoughts in his mind were Bart's. The feeling of identity was almost complete. To an outside observer, it appeared that Martin had become a cataleptic schizophrenic, completely cut off from reality. The Bart part of him did not want to be disturbed by the sensory impressions that Mart's body provided. Like the schizophrenic, Martin was living in a little world that was cut off from the actual physical world around his body. The difference between Martin's condition and that of the ordinary schizophrenic was that his little world actually existed. It was an almost exact counterpart of the world that existed in the perfectly sane, rational mind of his brother Bart. It grew and developed as Bart did, fed by the telepathic flow from the stronger mind to the weaker. There were two Barts and no Mart at all. And then the Neurophysical Institute had come into the picture. A new process had been developed by which a human being could be reconstructed, made literally into a superman. The drawback was that a normal human body resisted the process, to the death if necessary, just as a normal human body will resist a skin graft from an alien donor. But the radiation-damaged body of Martin Stanton had no resistance of that kind. With him, perhaps, the process might work. So Bartholomew Stanton, Martin's legal guardian after the death of their mother, had given permission for the series of operations that would rebuild his brother. The telepathic link, of course, had to be shut off, for a time at least. Part of that could be done in the treatment of Martin, 
but Bart, too, had to do his part. By submitting to hypnosis, he had allowed himself to be convinced that his name was Stanley Martin. He had taken a job on Luna and then gone to the asteroids. The simple change of name and environment had been just enough to snap the link during a time when Martin's brain had been inactivated by therapy and anesthetics. Only the sense of identity remained. The patient was still Bart. Mannheim had used them both, naturally. Colonel Mannheim had the ability to use anyone at hand, including himself, to get a job done. Stanton looked at his watch. It was almost time. Mannheim had sent for Stanley Martin when the time had come for him to return in order to give the Knipe data that he would be sure to misinterpret. A special code phrase in the message had released Stanley Martin from the post-hypnotic suggestion that had held him for so long. He knew that he was Bartholomew Stanton again. And so do I, thought the man by the window. We have a lot to straighten out, we two. There was a knock at the door. Stanton walked over and opened it, trying to think. It was like looking into a mirror. Hello, Bart, he said. Hello, Bart, said the other. In that instant, the complete telepathic linkage was restored, and they both knew what only one of them had known before, that for a time the flow had been one way again, that Stanley Martin had experienced the entire battle with the Nipe. His release from the post-hypnotic suggestion had made it possible. Eduibus unum. There was unity without loss of identity. End of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. 